You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Um, how many of you had sung that tune before? Thought so. We did, we did very well. Now we are turning again to First Peter this evening. For those of you who are visitors, we've been studying through First Peter on Sunday evenings. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find the passage for the night on page 1220, First Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read there verses 1 through 4. But you're turning there. Um, I would never disagree with Hugh on a dark night in a narrow alley, uh, but I think David did say this morning that he was preaching next Sunday, and next to having an altercation with Hugh in a dark alley, the worst thing would be to have a punch-up with David as we both came to the lectern next Sunday morning. So, um, if that's wrong, uh, there are usually uh, half a dozen ministers in our services, uh, and most of them have been preaching for about 40 years, 100 to 200 sermons a year. One of them will be able to heat up something from the past. So, do not uh, forsake the assembling of ourselves together next Lord's Day in the fear that there wouldn't be a sermon. Now, Peter is beginning to draw his letter to a conclusion, and uh, the finally in chapter 3, verse 8, is uh, one of those little connective words in Greek that probably should be otherwise translated, but our translators seem to have this neurosis to translate it finally and provide preachers with jokes about… apostolic preachers who say finally and then go on for a long time. I'm pretty sure Peter did not mean it in that sense. But he is now coming to the end of his letter, and the words that we're looking at tonight address the elders in particular. Um, And this means that most of us in the congregation can switch off uh, by no means One of the elders was about to drag me out of the lectern there when I said that. Uh, We need to know what our elders should be so that we can pray for them, so that we may aspire, uh, if we are younger men, to the ministry of the elder. And also these words are relevant because there are principles in the eldership of the congregation that apply more broadly in every form of spiritual leadership, including spiritual leadership in the home. So, what we have here are particular principles applied to a special role in the life of the congregation that we can apply severally, each of us, in our own callings, our ministry in the church, our ministry at home, in our families, but we do need to listen to them in the first instance as words spoken to the elders. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. 
be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. There are two big themes in Peter's first letter. For all practical purposes, he announces them in the opening sections of his letter. The first is the theme of sanctification, living a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus in his instance in a pre-Christian world, and as we have been seeing in our own instance as the Word of God comes to us almost 2,000 years later, in a post-Christian world. And yet, many similarities between the two worlds, the rejection of the gospel, the idolatry, the paganism of the society in which we live, and the call to be a distinctive Christian in that society, so distinctive that one of the things we've noticed on more than one occasion is that Peter expects that Christians will not need to stimulate non-Christians to ask them questions. Their lives will stimulate non-Christians to ask them questions. And the second theme that always goes along with the distinctiveness of the church's existence and the Christian's life, faithfulness to Jesus Christ, is that Christians will experience suffering. And these Christians are on the verge of suffering. Uh, the Christian church was sheltered under the fact that Judaism was a, a permitted, a legally permitted religion, and Christianity was seen uh, sometimes called the way. Remember that in the Acts of the Apostles, those who belong to the way. So, there were Pharisees and Sadducees and those who belonged to the way, and early on Christians were sheltered under that umbrella in the Roman Empire. But soon they began to emerge and, of course, in a matter of a year or two from Peter writing this letter, Nero's persecution would break out. Peter himself uh, would be executed along, uh, we believe, with the Apostle Paul, and there would be waves of persecution uh, for decades that Christians would experience. And Peter is preparing these Christians who are already suffering in measure, who already seem strange to those who are not Christians, and he wants them to stand fast. There's a little connecting word uh, that is left untranslated in the New International Version. New International Version, incidentally, is a bad habit of leaving connecting words untranslated, but there is a connecting link in what Peter says between his teaching at the end of chapter 4 on suffering as a Christian and what he is going on to say. It's as though he's saying, now in the light of what I'm saying to you about suffering, 
connected to the fact that Christians are going to suffer because of this. Therefore, accordingly, he says, I want to say a word to you elders, because you are going to have a very special responsibility to the flock of Jesus Christ in the light of what they are going to experience. And so, he's talking about sanctification. He's talking about suffering. And now, as you'll see from the language that he uses here, he's going on to speak about shepherding and being shepherded. Hence, the exhortation in verse 2, you elders be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. And it's very interesting the way Peter introduces this. The Apostle Paul also, similarly in his letters, at certain points in order to emphasize something, he will put himself again into the letter. He will offer his credentials for what he's about to say. And it's very beautiful that here when Peter addresses the elders, he reintroduces himself into the letter, but now in somewhat different terms from the way he had addressed the whole letter. Chapter 1 and verse 1, he had given his credentials for writing this letter to them, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But now as he addresses the elders, it's as though he places himself among them. He wants to identify with them, and I think especially he wants them to be able to identify with him. He too, presumably when he served in local churches over periods of time, perhaps for all we know in this church, probably in the church in Rome, he had served not only as an apostle, but in the local church, he had also served as an elder. And so, he's speaking to them as one who has sat where they sit, uh, not as it were as one of the twelve, not as someone who has, uh, as it were, been an itinerant evangelist, but as someone who has lived within the context of the church, wrestled with the life of a local congregation, experienced the ups and the downs, the rhythms of life, the new converts, those who may have turned away from the faith, the, the heartbreaks as well as the encouragements of life together in a particular family of God. And so, he opens this little section by saying to them, to the elders among you, I appeal as somebody who is a fellow elder and as someone who has experienced the very things that he has been teaching them about as a church, a fellow elder and someone who is a witness of Christ's sufferings and someone who will share in the glory to be revealed. And it's as though he's, he is embracing them together and in introducing himself He's actually doing something very interesting that he will stress for those elders. He is using himself as a kind of example. 
He's saying, now, you remember who I am. I am Peter. I am, I am a fellow elder with you, and you know enough about my life story to know that I was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, and as an eyewitness, I sometimes failed, but also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And of course, although he's speaking about the future glory, suffering now, glory then, I don't think that he could have written this to them without them thinking that Peter not only participated in the sufferings of Christ, but Peter also was near enough to feel the reflected glory, the glory of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus, the glory of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the glory of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. And he had tasted something of that glory. Remember how John puts it at the end of the narrative of the changing of the water into wine, that this was Jesus' first miracle, and he manifested his glory. So, Peter was somebody in whom the very lesson that he's been teaching about suffering was embodied, embodied and, and deeply embedded. And it was as though he was saying, I think you can listen to me. He doesn't need to say it. Um, people who are reliable and trustworthy as ministers of the gospel usually don't need to say it. it. It's evident, and it becomes evident to us as we, as we listen to their teaching, as we, as we are shepherded by them, that, that these are men who know the reality of what they are speaking about. This is, this is not just book knowledge. This isn't because they've been to theological college but because the basic principles of life in Jesus Christ have emerged in their lives and worked out into their lives. And Peter has known this glorious basic rhythm of the Christian life, that when we set ourselves apart for the Lord Jesus and are enabled to do that by the Holy Spirit, there is this rhythm of death and resurrection, of suffering and glory and amazingly, already we taste both. And I think that's the reason why he doesn't mention what is really, you would think, the obvious thing for him to mention. He's exhorting them to be shepherds of the flock, and he doesn't need to say, because it's so obvious, you know I needed to be shepherded too. Uh, almost certainly these Christians did not have John's gospel. But perhaps they knew the narrative that was embedded in John's gospel. I'm pretty sure it spread very quickly throughout the church that when Simon Peter had failed, you remember the Lord Jesus came along on the shore of the, the sea, and uh, he, took, he took Peter for that little walk by the sea, and he shepherded him. And he said to Peter, he remembered, do you love me more than these? 
Actually, it's, it's quite a puzzle. Have you ever thought about this? It's quite a puzzle. What's he talking about these? Do you love me more than these? Lord, and he restores him. You know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. Then he says, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. I think if you knew Peter, if you knew Peter, presumably these Christians knew Peter, you couldn't hear these words read in the assembly when the letter arrived, I think, without your, your mind beginning to float a little and thinking of this man perhaps even hearing his accent as the letter was read out in the church. And, and you see this, this picture behind the words of Jesus, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, finding the sheep who had got fairly lost, whose, whose leg was broken, bringing him home, restoring him, and then saying to him, now, Peter, as I have shepherded you, you shepherd others. And it's such, a, it's such a living example for those who are elders. It's such a picture of what it means for them to be elders. That is to say, Peter is calling them to do for the flock of Jesus Christ what Jesus Christ did for Simon Peter and perhaps also what Simon Peter has done for them. And all emerging from this question, do you love me more than these? I don't think in all my life I've ever been in an interview of candidates for the eldership where that Jesus question has actually been asked. Actually, there are several good questions I've never heard asked. Elders are supposed to be well thought of by outsiders. It's a very rare thing for a session or a congregation to stop and ask that question. What do outsiders think about him? But imagine yourself as a prospective elder is, is being interviewed, and, and uh, whoever is doing the interviewing has ticked off all the boxes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, sound doctrine. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he has no over-love for money. He's, he's not a drunkard. Uh, he's able to teach. And then uh, Mr. Smith, with apologies to any Smiths in the congregation. Do you love Jesus more than everything else in the world? And you see, not to be able to say yes would be immediately to disqualify yourself from this kind of ministry. So, what is this ministry that he's, he's bringing to bear upon them? Well, there are essentially three dimensions that he speaks about here, many more in the rest of the New Testament. The first is that he tells them something, reminds them of the elder's task. Look at what he says in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Of course, to these believers, uh, shepherd was a loaded word. Um, some words are more loaded than others when we use them. If, if I say thistle in Scotland, it comes loaded 
with memories and information and associations that it probably doesn't come to if you live in some part of the northern United States. It comes loaded with the emotion of, might just be the emotion of, of being scratched when you were a child, but thistle, it's, a, it's emblematic in our country, so it, it comes loaded. If your name is Ferguson, then it comes loaded with the fact that the thistle is, uh, is, on, your, is on your clan symbol, a bee sucking down into the thistle, and the Latin motto, Dulcius ex Asperis, which, as you all know, means essentially that you're sweeter as a result of difficulties. Sweetness out of sharpness. And so, when I hear the word thistle, all of those associations, or some of them, will, will kind of uh, surround the word with emotions and memories and thoughts. And of course, the same was true of the word shepherd. Say the word shepherd in many cultures, and people think about men and sheep. But say the word shepherd in this biblical culture that was so, so used to shepherds and sheep, and the mind goes beyond the shepherds and the sheep to the true shepherd and the people of God as the sheep, God as the shepherd, the one who, had sh who was the shepherd of Israel and brought them out of Egypt and through the years wandering in the wilderness, that huge flock of His sheep and remind you that the, the kings and the priests in Israel were to minister to the people as their shepherds. They were to care for them and nurture them. And so, this is the association of this simple exhortation, be shepherds of God's flock. And that means, as they would understand from the Old Testament Scriptures and certainly from the illustrations of gospel shepherding, the model of Paul and the Acts of the Apostles and the church at Thessalonica, Peter's example before them, that would mean feeding and teaching, guiding, restraining, watching over, restoring, exercising discipline, leading, all of those aspects of ministry, the ministry of the Word of God that, as Paul says, is useful to Timothy, who is locally not only an evangelist but also serving presumably as an elder in the church in Ephesus that God's Word is going to be used by him as an under-shepherd for teaching and for convicting, for correcting, for healing, transforming, for, for leading in the right paths. is the very thing that the shepherd does in Psalm 23. He, he restores my soul, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness, for His name's sake. And all of this, of course, in the, in the Eastern mind, uh, presenting the idea of the shepherd leader, the priest as the leader of the people, who is in front of the people, the king who leads the people, 
Solomon in that great prayer is leading the people in prayer. The, you know, if there's one thing people in the West seem to know about Eastern shepherds is that they go in front of the sheep. He leads me. And this is what these under-shepherds are to do. A friend of mine was uh, taking a, a trip tour, I think, with people in his congregation to Israel, and he was explaining to them how in the East uh, shepherds go in front of their flock, and uh, as they were touring along in the bus, there was somebody, and he was behind the flock, and they all turned and said, you said Eastern shepherds go in front of the flock. Said to the driver, stop the bus. He ran off, got up to the fellow, and then he came back delighted, and he said, he told me he wasn't the shepherd. He was the butcher. (laughs) He wasn't leading the flock. He was driving the flock. And that actually makes a pretty good segue to the second dimension of being an elder and a pastoral leader that Peter addresses. Not only the task that the elder has of being an under-shepherd of the flock of Jesus Christ, but the manner in which he exercises his ministry, fulfills that task as a shepherd who leads, not as a butcher who drives. And so, he speaks now about the style of the elder's life and ministry. Be shepherds of God's flock, verse 2, that is under your care, that is among you. Serve as an overseer. And then notice the three qualifications. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So, the elder is to exercise this ministry. Think about any spiritual leadership in this way. Think about leadership in the family this way. Not grudgingly, but willingly. Why, why, would, why would an elder do it grudgingly? Same way a, a father can treat his children to treats grudgingly. That's possible, isn't it? There's a special reason for this, and that is because it was certainly true of the church in this period and remains true of the church, that the elder bears the brunt of all the discouragements, all the disappointments, and in this case also of the attacks. That's what he's there to do. He's there, as it were, to put his body in front of the sheep to protect them, to give them to give them the space that they need to grow and to be nourished. He's there to say, not among the flock, me first, but if there are any attacks on the flock, me first. And you find this in the records of persecution as you go into the second century, that it's not Joe Christian who who became a believer three years ago who is usually persecuted but it's the deacon or the elder or the leader or the bishop. 
And you see, you could begin to grudge that fairly easily, couldn't you? Well, I know I need to be an elder. I do it, I do it grudgingly because I know it's going to cost me, cost me in time, cost me in emotional energy, cost me in all I'm going to discover about the life of the church in order to be able to minister to the life of that church. But notice how he puts it. He says, be shepherds of God's flock, not because you must, but because you are willing, not grudgingly, but willingly as God wants you to be. Now, you see what he's saying. He's saying, this is how the Lord is the great shepherd. I hope you don't, but I can imagine some of this may still linger in many of our hearts, this kind of lingering fear that when God is generous to us, there's just a wee bit of grudge left in him. You know, some Christians know absolutely nothing of that. Many Christians live the whole of their Christian lives with this deep-seated suspicion that behind the love of the Lord Jesus is a grudging father. As though the Lord Jesus had to twist the father's arm behind his back and say, if I die for them, will you love them? And sometimes the gospel is preached in those terms. But it's not the gospel at all. It's not the gospel to say, God loves you because Christ died for you. That would be to suggest that Christ's death persuaded a reluctant father grudgingly to save us. But if we know anything of the gospel, it's this, that God, who in this sentence is obviously God the Father, so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so, you see, the most important thing for the elder, the most important thing for the leader, the most important thing for the father or the mother or the teacher in the Sunday school or the witness is that in our leadership, in our being under shepherds, we're not grudging because our Father is not grudging. And if we don't have a grudging disposition to lost sheep, we're not, we're not emotionally irritated we don't treat lost sheep as though they were our enemies. But the ungrudging love of the Heavenly Father has taken hold of us, and so we serve God's people as God wants us to do, not grudgingly, but willingly. And then notice the second contrast, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. So, not grudgingly, but willingly, not greedily, but eagerly. This probably refers to financial gain. Uh, some elders in the churches in the New Testament times were paid. Now, ministers are paid 
But there's no reason why other elders in the church shouldn't be paid. I'm not bringing that up at the session. Uh, The elders in the church don't need to worry. Um, What does that mean? It means that in order for them to have the time and the space to minister to us, we buy that time and space from what they would else be doing. And uh, there obviously was a temptation that comes out in the qualifications for the elder in First uh, Timothy and in Titus that, that we mustn't call somebody to the ministry of the elder who, who, who is over-fascinated by the gain he may make from that. I mean, I, I mean think of all the terrible jokes about ministers that they, they get paid for what they love doing that they are six days invisible and one day incomprehensible. Now, where does all that come from? It comes from, it comes from the, the damnable idea that men go into this for the money, and alas, from what would be the appearance of things that some do. But perhaps it's more than financial. Dirty gain need not necessarily be financial. It can also be positional, can't it? Uh, To become an elder because of the position that it gives in the church. I've been part of the preaching team, I think, in four congregations, so you've you've only a one in four chance of guessing which congregation this might be. And there was a man in the congregation who phoned me pretty regularly on a Monday morning to say two things to me. The first was, you should stick to writing books. This is after I'd preached my heart out on Sunday. I mean, maybe some of you are actually thinking that just now. I can't read your mind. You should stick to writing books. And and the other, which was like unto the first, was to complain that he'd never been made an elder. And eventually, he became so exasperated with me one day. Um, And yes, I confess one of my sins is stubbornness, but I was just trying to be faithful. He got so exasperated with me, he said, you know, I am worth you, and he mentioned my predecessor together. I'm worth you and your predecessor together. And I thought, you know, if I, if I subtract myself from my predecessor friend, you're not remotely worth what's left. And you don't know why it is that you've not been asked to become an elder in this congregation. Because it sounds so much as though you're grasping for position because of your self-perceived gifts rather than for a sphere of service in which you humble yourself and you say to people, by your disposition first and then in the reality of your actions, how can I serve you? How can I speak of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, and also be your servant for Jesus' sake? Actually, uh, there is a position that we should seek. 
I call it the John 13 position. On your knees, girded with the servant's towel, washing the dirty feet of fellow disciples. So, they're called to serve, not grudgingly, but willingly, not greedily, but eagerly. And then, they're called to serve, not domineeringly, but in a way that is exemplary, not lording it over the flock, but those as those who are serving those entrusted to us by being examples to the flock. Diotrephes comes to mind, doesn't he, in 3 John, who loved to have preeminence, loved to lord over the flock, loved that the flock would go his way, more like a butcher. In fact, he threw people out of the church, killed them spiritually, rather than a genuine elder and spiritual leader. No, he says, don't be domineering, but be an example to the flock. The, the Greek word is, is tupos, which we get the word, well, this refers only to half of us who know what these things are, but it's the word from which we get the word typewriter, which were the things we old folk used to use before they were computers. Some of us still have one. How does a typewriter work? Well, you press the key I mean, if you're really cool, you press the key. You press the key, and this letter came up, and it banged onto the piece of paper, and it left the impress of the letter that your finger had banged. And that's what he's saying. That's, that's how the elder serves the people, by his life leaving an impress on their lives that is Christ-shaped, that, is, that has got Bible letters on it by being an example. And that's a great thing, isn't it? it? It happens in the fellowship of the church subliminally, largely. It's not about giving lectures. It's about, it's about, it's about the style of life. You look at someone and subliminally, it may, it may not even form as a concept in your mind, but th there is something about that person that you want to be like that. And indeed, not only do you want to be like that, but simply by being with them, by watching them, by spending time with them, it, as we say, rubs off. You know, I've spent uh, chunks of my life uh, roving the cosmos, speaking at churches and conferences, and many occasions, especially when I was younger, finding myself hosted by a husband and a wife. And when I arrived off the plane, uh, I would think, now, what's going to happen this weekend? One of the things I would do, just as a little mind game, was say to myself, if, if I'm going to be hosted in a family or with a husband and wife, I'm going to try and see how long into the weekend it takes me to see why it is these two got married in the first place. And so, out of the corner of my eye, hope this isn't being recorded, this is a bit to be knocked off, out of the corner of my eye, I would watch them. And you know, apart from my little game, one of the things I noticed again and again and again was how many married couples 
were so, became, had become so like each other. I mean, even, even to the point of facial mannerisms. Well, of course, you look at somebody walking their dog, and isn't it amazing how often you think, now, why is that? Well, I've never had a dog. I'm only speculating. It's poochy, poochy, poochy. And you make doggy faces to dogs. When you're talking to little ones, you speak little ones' speech. You're talking to your husband or wife. You, you mold each other. And it never crosses your mind at the beginning of your marriage, I'm going to let this woman mold me. Now, it may cross the wife's mind, <laughs> this man is so disordered, I need to do something to mold him back into shape. But you see dispositions, attitudes. Uh, isn't it amazing? And it's like this in the family of the church as well, with the elders, that they, they rub off on us. And in so many ways, they invisibly, subliminally help to create the atmosphere of, of church life. And that's what he's saying. He's saying to them, don't do this grudgingly, but willingly. Don't do this greedily, but eagerly. Don't do this domineeringly, but in a way that's exemplary. Why should that be? Because this is God's flock. This is, actually the word he uses is the word from the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the lot that the tribes of Israel were given, their inheritance. If I can put it colloquially, this lot has been given to our elders. But you see, it's not just a matter of potluck. What he's really saying is this, you're to, you're to look after God's flock here, Christ's flock here, as the flock the Lord Jesus has given to you, just as Jesus looked after what he called the little flock. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Just as Jesus looked after his little flock, because they were His Father's. You gave them to me in your love for me. So the elder sees the flock in the midst of which he serves, and he says to the Lord Jesus, this is the flock that you have given to me in your love for me and for them. These are the words of Bernard of Clairvaux, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, and all those great pieces of hymnody. Had I some of that blood that poured forth on the cross, how carefully would I carry it? Ought I not to be as careful for those for whom that blood was shed? Isn't that great? You imagine the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross, how, how precious that would seem to you to be. And Bernard is saying, well, if that's the case, how, how valuable to me should be those for whom Christ shed that blood on the cross. And that leads him, of course, to some 
final words of encouragement. The elders' task, the elders' manner or style, and the elders' encouragements. And so, he says at the end here, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, there are many encouragements in being an elder, wonderful encouragements in being an elder. Other elders are wonderful encouragements to elders. There is a fraternity, a bond that's created, a mutual service, a mutual affection, a mutual esteem for the gifts of the others, a mutual benefit. There is a blessing in being part of a living congregation. But Peter is saying uh, we, need to, we need to look even further on than that, because when the chief shepherd appears, you see, you see the picture, the under-shepherds have been looking after the flock of the chief shepherd, and now the chief shepherd is coming back. You see, he's looking now to the return of Jesus Christ, and he's coming back, and he, he wants to know how his flock has been doing. What have you been doing to serve them? He's going to assess their ministry. And he says, live like this. Be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, this is not the crown of the coronation. This is the, this is the, this is the crown of the Olympic Games. This is not for those who have domineered over the flock as kings. This is for those who have run the race, who have, who have wrestled through the issues, have, uh, have done the taekwondo with the enemies. Um, and he will place on your head, he says, the, the garland, the equivalent of the gold medal. I mean, we've seen it, haven't we? Some of us have seen it on television. The emotion of people when they receive that gold medal and the national anthem of their country is played. And it's, it's profoundly moving to watch. But surely that pales into insignificance. The discipline, the energy for a worldly honor pales into insignificance with what it means to serve the Lord Jesus Christ by serving His people and to look forward to this garland that will be placed on our heads. And he, he uses, uh, the adjective he uses to describe it is actually drawn from uh, the color of a flower. Uh, we speak about evergreens. They spoke about ever-reds. This ever-red garland. Of course, it's reminiscent of what he'd said earlier on to all believers. There's this inheritance that it can't be spoiled, it can't be stolen, it can't fade. It lasts forever. And he says this will be the privilege of those who have served the Lord Jesus, this crown of glory that never fades away. I see all the congregations listening to this. He's saying now, elders, and everybody's hearing. Everybody's hearing what they should be. Everybody's thinking, if this is what they are, what then should I be? 
how blessed I am to have such elders who nurture me and nourish me and care for me and guard me and guide me and love me and show me the way. And as I, as I see where their eyes are fixed, I see that ultimately they're leading me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake that will lead me with them to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when the chief shepherd appears, not only will the under-shepherds receive the crown of glory, but the sheep will be welcomed in to what the book of Revelation, following through the metaphor, calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lamb, who is our shepherd, will lead us, and we will drink everlastingly from springs of everlasting life. What a great thing it is to belong to a living church, isn't it? Whether it's small or large. And to be able to pray with expectation that the Lord will give us elders like this, and to take some of these principles and apply them to the way we, we serve in our church family and the way we serve at home, always to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and to know that He is no one's debtor. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious Father, thank You that You have so loved us that You've given Your Son for us. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have given Yourself for us that we might give ourselves for You. Thank You, Holy Spirit, that You open the eyes of our understanding to be able to sense and feel and understand in measure the depth of the love that You have for us, together with the Father and the Son. Lord, make us such a church as this. Encourage our elders to be such to us. Encourage us in such a way that our lives will make their leadership a joy to them and not a frustration. And keep all of our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, we pray, and on the crown, and on the glory, and on the final destiny to which you are leading us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.